0: hi everybody i'm drew mcqueenie and i am one of the co-hosts of 80s all over i'm joined today by scott weinberg say hello sir
1: what's up sci-fi junkies
0: (laughs) I'm very excited to be doing this one. This um, we'll get into all this, but this is a very special movie to both of us. We're going to go ahead and start playing because it's a good full two-hour movie, um, uh, 111 every- minutes. Everybody, get ready.
1: Yeah. So basically, uh, pause your screen when you see the beginning of the Universal logo. Just pause that right there, and then unpause the Universal logo on three, two, one, go. There we go. All right. So, Drew, um, let's start. So- let's start at the beginning
0: uh, well, uh this, this opening line, which is one of my favorites in film history, was very nearly the title of this podcast.
1: Yeah, uh, my, I was very uh, insistent that Colitis on Board would be a good title for this podcast, and Drew liked it, but didn't love it. And then uh, I believe, I think him and our illustrious producer came up with 80s all over.
0: I think it's a great, one of my re- one of the reasons I love that opening line is it is such a great banal reason for evil. He's just bored and wants to play, and I think it sets up such a Terrific! Then rest of the movie. Um, and this whole opening, it's its interesting because this is not a faithful adaptation by any definition, but the opening idea that Earth is about to be destroyed, Flash, Dale, and Zarkov meet very quickly and get off the planet, that was done in like 15 panels in the original comic. And I think ripples throughout our pop culture. I think you see it in plenty of other stuff, whether it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, is clearly a riff on that. Or even the way uh, Lucas's first Star Wars is built with Alderaan being blown up and everybody leaving the planet.
1: All right, these are all pretty common uh, disasters: ty- typhoon, tornado, and then one that says "hot hail." What, <laughs> hot- Drew? What's hot hail? Uh,
0: I I don't know, but it sounds terrible. Um, I love. Here we go. Now we're often running with the the Queen soundtrack. And if you were a kid in nineteen eighty. This was a huge part of what got me into that theater was the the first time you hear the way this record works with the dialogue and the sound effects. Man, it is insanely ev- evocative. And the idea that Queen wasn't their first choice, that you know, uh, Dino didn't even know what rock music really was until he heard them, that's mind-boggling to me.
1: If you uh, pay close attention to these credits, you'll notice that you in most cases, see the character, uh, right before the, uh, the actor's name pops up. And that's fun. I like that.
0: It is. It's a great way of, of establishing what the style, the Alex Raymond style looked like, um, and the film definitely leans on a lot of the style, but it's not exactly the same thing. Like it doesn't look exactly the same. And, and I think it was interesting seeing how they got there and, and how a lot of it's just an accident because nobody understood each other in the, uh, in the production chain there were like 15 languages being spoken yeah
1: did did you that's and I, I think the language barrier we can get into this in a little but I think it's widely documented that the language barriers both intentionally and unintentionally uh, caused some problems uh, that, that that I think Dano de Laurentiis was okay with some of the uh, some of the um problems uh, because he wanted to make something weird and different and the fact that you know he had these two different factions who didn't really know each other that well. Uh, they all had to just kind of follow his orders. And that's pretty well, much what and, happened.
0: And they went through a lot to get there because the Nick Rogue take that it's funny. There's the there's the story that I'd always heard, which was that Nick Rogue went away and in secrecy worked for an entire year with his co-writer, Michael Allen. And they they came up with everything. And then they went back and
1: Wait, you went too far, though. You went you What about go back even further? Who was supposed to direct this before Nicholas Rogue?
0: Well, I, I always heard that Nick Rogue was first. Well, okay, yes, Federico Fellini was certainly
1: part of that early conversation. Yeah, I, the, the De Laurentiis originally optioned it because he wanted Fellini to direct it. I, I don't think that he true. There was ever was And Fellini any-
0: was a huge, huge fan. Like, he grew up on them, and they were his version of America. And I do wonder, you know, we wouldn't have gotten what we would get now, like when you see um, – uh, Besson du Valerian, which, which is the same thing, like something he grew up on and he finally now years later gets to make it. I think Fellini's he, he still would have been struggling against sort of the, the limitations of tech and and what people had done up to that point, but I bet it would have been a beautiful dream. Like, I bet his would have been very affectionate Uh, The Nick Rogue version, they went away and again, like I heard the story one way, which was they went away and they worked in secrecy for a year and they came back and, and pitched it. And in the room, he told them no and then pitched the version he would make. And Rogue said, I wouldn't make that movie and left. And the reality is that they worked for a year together closely with 30 artists and like several drafts of the script. And Dino knew what was happening. It's just that gradually I think he fell out of love with that version.
1: Here comes Robbie Coltrane real quick. You'll see a quick. Uh, That's
0: awesome. Very yeah. young.
1: Uh, and there's the beautiful Melody Anderson, the very handsome Sam Jones. We'll get to them in a bit. But uh, I, I, I hope that our listeners will uh, forgive us uh, because, um, or at least me, because I plan to go through virtually every actor in this cast. I absolutely love this cast. Um, some argue that Sam Jones is a little bit wooden. And there's also the longstanding uh, rumors that everywhere from 10% to 95% of his performance was dubbed by a an unknown, still to this day, unknown actor. Uh, we don't know how much of his voice is dubbed. Let's just admit that right off the bat, right? We don't the, know. The
0: best, no, but the best, the best, most accurate versions that I've heard in terms of uh, Free of kind of hyperbole in the accounting is that a lot of it was when Jones left early and just wouldn't come back and do stuff that they worked with both a physical body double for some of the stuff and with a voice double. But that the goal was always to make it sound like Sam Jones's voice, that enough of the movie is him, that they were clearly they hired somebody just to sound like him.
1: And that, I think, is why the rumor has always persisted that it's all dubbed. When, yeah, of course, I, I, I don't think it's nearly all dubbed. I, I think that the- well, it
0: can't be because so much of it was made up on the set. Like, there's stuff in this movie where either you got the very best ADR of all time because it's perfectly synced, or you have to accept that some of it really is Sam Jones because they were making shit up while they were shooting. And frequently, they're, they're, they they're had no idea what he was saying. Like, even, even within the production staff, sometimes they didn't know what he was saying. So...
1: By most accounts, uh, depending on what side you listen to, either uh, Sam Jones or producer De Laurentiis, they just didn't get along. And either Sam was the the jerk or or Dana was the jerk. And uh, Sam left after principal photography, didn't come back for second unit. So a lot of his uh, ADR was done by someone else and he didn't promote the film. He didn't go on tour with it. And uh, a lot of people say that that really hurt his career. And I can't help but agree with that theory.
0: Well, and it, it also doesn't help that he didn't promote the film, but he did sue Dino De Laurentiis for not making the sequels. And it's like, you can't have it both ways, pal. You can't expect that they would have made sequels to a movie you didn't even try to help sell as Flash freaking Gordon. So and I still I do think that, you know, when you look at Ted and you look at the the sort of legacy the film has and how it's, it's continued to play in pop culture, at some point he made some sort of piece with it. And and clearly has accepted that Flash Gordon is a giant part of his identity and always will be.
1: Yeah, uh, you, the, these the, all these wonderfully simple—I uh, like, mean, all these landscape effects and all these uh, uh, sky shots that you see a oh, lot of. Oh, it's the them Cloud later.
0: Tank movie of all Cloud Tank movies.
1: Uh, it's beautiful. Now, uh, 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 coming up here, Drew, we need to take a special moment to spotlight. A character actor we all know and love, lying in bed right here. Munson as played by the late, great William Hootkins.
0: Who Drew, why, we talked about is he, last month, Yeah, in, uh, or no, two months ago. Uh,
1: why is he famous in Geek Circles? Well, I for me it's he is so great
0: in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He has one of the greatest scenes in movie history, and he's a huge part of why
1: that scene works. He's wonderful in that sequence. He is Major Eaton in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He is Porkins in Star Wars. He is uh Henry or Harry, I should say, in Superman Four. He is Eckhart in Batman. He uh is just one of those character actors who just happened to pop up in a lot of geek properties and always did good work and He uh, passed away in 2005, and he's in this film very briefly. So just wanted to throw a little love on the late Bill Hootkins, who is standing here behind Chaim Topol, who is a great, a very fun presence in Flash.
0: I always felt like Lucas's tendency to create names that are either like wildly on the nose or vaguely bizarre jokes. Um, Really, to me, the, the, the worst example of that is him calling Hootkins Porkins in the first Star Wars. It's like, hey, Lucas, ease up, buddy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here, oh, look out. Here comes Captain Tubby's. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, most people, uh, a lot of people will know uh, Topol, uh, Chaim Topol, uh, mostly best known as Topol from, of course, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. But uh, I, I found Fiddler on the Roof. My parents, of course, being Jewish, tried to get me to watch Fiddler on the Roof as a kid, bored me to tears. But when when he popped on the screen, I'm like, oh, my God. That's Dr. Zarkov. (laughs)
0: Well, and I think he and a big part of what helped hold things together here was casting him and Von Zaido, who were such pros opposite Melody Anderson and Sam Jones, who were green, Uh, you know, like whatever you think of their work here. They were both kind of green at the time. And to have these guys who were just so good and whose chops are so big. Working as sort of the support team really helps, and I think Von Zaito sets a tone. I think Topol sets an insane tone for his half of the
1: movie. Yeah, I love. Uh, I love how <laughs> Matt, look at him; he's uh, awesome. Topol here is manic and everything, but he turns out to be one hundred percent right. So all of this is kind of justified.
0: <laughs> well, and that's that's what I, I that's what I like is sort of the them going back to that very early Alex room because. Alex Raymond was under a weird sort of commercial pressure when he created Flash Gordon. And it's that situation that happens a lot throughout our pop culture history where something is a success. Somebody turns around an artist and says, all right, make me one of those. And then they come up with something that's genuinely theirs and genuinely has its own resonance. And I think Flash Gordon is a great example of that because it literally only exists because Buck Rogers was a hit. And the newspaper syndicates that were going head to head battled and wanted their own version.
1: It's really funny, though, how the the history of these major uh, science fiction uh, uh, franchises kind of kind of leapfrog over each other. And most har- most uh, uh, genre fans will, of course, know that Lucas wanted to do Flash Gordon, but he couldn't afford the rights, which had already been acquired by Dana De Laurentiis. And that's partially what inspired him to go off and make Star Wars, is because he couldn't, he wasn't, he was not able to make Flash Gordon. And I uh,
0: yeah. I don't think some people realize how closely that DNA works. Lucas, really, the only reason we have original Alex Gordon artwork from Flash Gordon is because George Lucas broke into the place they were converting into Microfish and stole it. It was going to be destroyed otherwise. So literally, the art that exists is because of him and his love of Flash Gordon. And But, uh, you know, you see things that you talk about that leapfrogging. There was a Flash Ming sword fight that was supposed to be in this film that was a very famous piece of Alex Raymond art that is obviously where the sword fighting and the laser swords came from, from star Wars, it didn't end up in this movie, which came afterwards. And I think it's so funny that basically laser swords now become George Lucas's property completely.
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is some great miniature work here as the, uh, as the plane miniature work is
0: so on point in this film, man.
1: And here's what bothered me as a kid and bothers me now. Ready? Flash Gordon just killed this innocent guy. Not, well, the plane did, not his fault. But they don't even care. <laughs> they don't no one even like no one even looks down and says, Oh my god, there's a bloody pulp underneath us. Oh my god. Yeah. Nothing. Poor Munson.
0: Poor Munson. Um the, the miniature guys on this, one of my favorite miniature films of all time is um Brazil, Terry Gilliams Brazil. And I the flying miniatures in that by Richard Conway are awesome. They are so beautiful.
1: Don't step in Munson when you put her down. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. I just stepped in this man's pancreas. Oh.
0: This this team, a lot of this team are guys that had done they went on to do like Richard Conway went on to do Brazil from here, but this was Bill Pearson who was a monster at the time. And um and also uh uh had just done Alien and Martin J. Bauer did that with him. For Alien, the miniatures aren't just the miniatures that you're thinking of. I, there's a lot of people still don't know there's scenes in Alien where to get the scale of that spaceship right. They made children sized spacesuits and they had children playing the cast for certain sequences in order to get that scale right. Yeah. So these guys are the guys that did that stuff and were so creative and had done Space 1999 and Doctor Who and kind of defined how British sci-fi looked and then came over immediately to do this. And I, I honestly I think some of the model work in this is about as good as model work has been. Look how ever pretty, been.
1: look how nice the cinematography is. When, you could tell when they, because she has, you know, beautiful dark hair and beautiful blue eyes. She's a good litmus test for how beautiful the cinematography is in this movie. Uh, even in this, you know, they're inside like a, you know, a tan uh, phone booth, basically. But it's still, it's still wonderfully shot. Uh, Drew, real quick, let's close the book on this. But uh, he, De Laurentiis uh, initially, at the very beginning, wanted Fellini to direct this. And there will be a very quick Fellini reference later on, we'll point that out. Uh, and then for about a year, Nicholas Rogue was going to direct it. And then before he went to Mike Hodges, who is most best known for a great British thriller called Get Carter, uh, it, he considered hiring Sergio Leone?
0: There, there, was talk. I don't think the Leone thing ever got any further because the, there was this weird sort of he did it in stages. When he fired uh, Rogan Allen, Lorenzo Simple Jr. had already come on. And I think you have to, as much as anybody, credit Lorenzo Simple as a screenwriter with the tone of this film and with cracking kind of what it was going to be. And then Hodges came on after him. And I think it's weird because Hodges was damaged goods by that point. He was fired from The Omen 2, um, and that was supposed to be his big Hollywood jump. Um, And his English films were all kind of like stripped down and lean and brutal and absolutely the opposite of what Lorenzo Semple was known for. So the idea of putting that together is kind of inspired. And I think, you know, they went through some casting choices. I know Kurt Russell was a possibility. And man, can you imagine a world where instead of used cars and escape from New York, we had Flash Gordon with Kurt Russell? What would that have done?
1: He could have been. Yeah, I, I. Here's my issue. Oh, I just want to note now that we are already on our way to outer space. That oh, yeah. all three Super all, fast. Wait. All three characters have just met, and now they're all off to outer space together in yeah, 15, 15 minutes. 15
0: minutes in, and they're off the planet.
1: Okay. Now, and I'm not saying that every sci-fi film should do that. But I like that this film does that.
0: <laughs> like I said, I think it's 15 panels in the original comics. So, yeah, it's that same breakneck. you got to hit the ground running. And more than anything, that energy is what I think Star Wars took. That notion of you start with a spaceship chase already happening and shit's already going on and you're just in it. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And we Drew, what's a really cool scene, uh, this whole sequence of you know, this here is where you really start to appreciate the Queen score, aside from the obviously iconic, eponymous, brilliant.
0: Oh, man, I think so much of the the instrumental stuff is amazing in this. And it makes sense that Pink Floyd was the first band they thought of. And I bet a Pink Floyd score for this would have been awesome. It, it would have been amazing, but it wouldn't have had the playfulness that Queen has. That's what Queen does so well.
1: I had read that as well, Drew, that I think it was more so that, like, Dark Side of the Moon was playing 24-7 on the set. But it was, ne- I don't think it was ever, but I thought when I read that, I went, oh my god, could you imagine if Pink Floyd? But yeah, you're right, this score, it rocks when it ro- wants to rock, and right now it's very uh, ephemeral spacey, very mystical, very, you know, just, just setting the tone. And then this, this cool uh, bass comes in. And then and this that cool- you
0: look at that ship, and that is so Blake Seven and so Doctor Who, and it, these you effects can- are
1: beautiful. Yeah. Look at this, the, the spiral it's going through. I absolutely love it. it. That
0: design is ineffable,
1: man. Yeah, I mean, you could say, sure. Oh, I get it. They, they're right there. That's the gentleman who played Lobot in Empire Strikes Back. Of course, it is. Yep. Uh, so that's one for the sci-fi geeks. Um, I was just, uh, just pointing out that even as a kid, I remember thinking, yeah, Flash, ah, Savior, everybody loved that song, and so did I. But there were this was one of the first films where I really noticed the incidental and orchestral music and how it helped the film. Uh, you, you get it much later when during the big action set pieces, how great the, the drum beats are and the bass. Uh, Queen didn't do many scores. They contributed songs to a lot of films. They, they did a, a score for Highlander a few years later, but, man, uh, these, they were both – this is a great score.
0: Well, and I think they made a real case for how rock music could be used in films. It's just that very few directors, I think, had the balls to try something like this. Mm, where look it's at this, how long they hold back it. and
1: forth. Look how long he holds this shot of the thing coming in. Oh, I love that. Of, of all the shots of it coming the, – the ship coming in, it's like the most old-school basic of effects. But, man, you don't have to work really hard to just – Get sucked into the visual scope of that. You're not looking at it, going, "Oh, it's kitschy." It's easy to play along with this.
0: Okay, so before we go any further, I guess you just used the word. So I'm going to go ahead and say, let's let's have the conversation now about camp and kitsch.
1: Yeah, I have a long list of notes here, Drew. That that I've already deleted some that we've already got to. But one of my key notes it says, "Topic: Campy" in question in, in quotation marks here.
0: Here's why this movie is truly great camp and unapologetic about it, because everything in this movie is played straight. You watch how the actors themselves play things. They're not kidding. They're playing it. They're all playing it like this is real. We're doing this. This is and they take it as seriously as you can take it. The world is
1: insane and things they do are insane. Pin in that. Just as you said the word "insane," we discover uh, what's this? A laser gun that shoots golden gloves? Yes. What the hell is that? <laughs> Who came up? Here's a here's a gun that shoots gold golden gloves at people's nets.
0: I've got to think that's simple, man, because simple is the same guy that in the Batman movie has anti bat shark repellent and stuff. I mean, he is he understands that. When you're dealing with pulp heroes and things, invention is ninety-nine. Pre- feel free to have gloves that shoot out of lasers.
1: Look at this. I hope you're watching this with us on a Blu-ray, because yes. good God. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's it's traditionally been a beautiful. Every version of this on home video has been one of those movies you buy to demonstrate what home video can look like.
1: Yeah. Oh, and you, you mentioned uh, Sample's connection to Batman. He was a writer and a producer on the uh, on the beloved. Uh, Batman series from the 60s. And while um, I don't think Flash Gordon plays up the quite, you know, the yuck, yuck punchlines quite as much as that show did, you if you approach Flash Gordon knowing that the man who made Batman work, wrote this, you, you'll kind of get, I think you'll appreciate it a bit more if you're...
0: Cold a Lizard Man. <laughs> and that Lizard Man costume is... Barely passable, and yet that's what I kind of love. Is I love that he has teeth in the middle of his face, and he's evidently green rags, and that makes him Lizard Man.
1: So so much, so many of the effects in this film are great, and then there's a couple of close-ups that are a little bit sketchy, and I just don't care. To me, it's like when you can see a thumbprint in a Harryhausen model. I don't care. That just Uh, It shows me the human aspect of it. Not everything has to be flawless. You know, in
0: addition to the camp
1: conversation,
0: I in doing some research for this and reading people writing about it, I, I think I probably read 10 different pieces that were framed. Well, Flash Gordon's a piece of shit. Ha ha ha. But I love it. But it's a piece of shit. Ha ha ha. But I love it. Shut up. Please stop doing that. Please, in our culture, stop doing that. If you love something and you can explain why you love something, stop calling it a piece of shit. Stop telling me it's bad and you love it. Just tell me you love it and why. And this movie, I'm
1: tired of hearing that this is bad. It's not a guilty pleasure. What, what you're saying when you call a film that you like a guilty pleasure is that you like it, but you know it's not like high art. Are you embarrassed by your own interests? You're not exactly sure how to articulate why you like a movie like this or Deep Rising. Oh, God, look at this. Or or is anything that's a a fun B movie. It's not a guilty pleasure. It's not so bad it's good. This movie is what Mike Hodges and Dana DeLaurentis meant to make. If it doesn't work for you and it doesn't speak to you, then that's fine. This movie
0: is a hit of pure candy-colored cinema. And if you can't enjoy it, it's Ornella Moody in outer space. Come on.
1: I don't want to, you know, come off as some, uh, I sound like a college professor snooty ass, but Susan Sontag once wrote a great essay in which she claimed, and I agree that camp is quote unquote failed seriousness to me, camp is when you try to be serious and you fail. That, to me, is the old school. Now, other people's definition of camp is like what John Waters does, which is broad and kitschy. And, and you know, I, but I don't think that's camp. But I think he plays camp-
0: it straight. He plays it sincere. When you watch Pink Flamingos or Polyester, I, I love when we did Polyester recently. The thing that is so great about that is when you watch Divine's performance, She's not kidding. There's not a there's not a punchline or a wink or an eyebrow arched at you. She means it. She's playing a Douglas Sirk movie and is 100 percent invested, just like the people in this film who genuinely are invested in the most ludicrous things. And that's part of what
1: makes it work. Yeah, uh, I I think, uh, you know, nobody here would claim that this is a perfect film by any measure. But. If your argument is that it's campy or kitschy or so bad it's good or guilty pleasure or it's a, it's, a, it's a bomb, blah, blah, blah. If you're coming at it from a negative aspect, we're not interested.
0: Yeah, and camp is not a bad word. Camp is not an inherently bad word. It doesn't mean bad, and people use it as bad.
1: It depends on the, what what definition you're using. By my definition, if I wrote a review and called a film campy. I wouldn't. Actually, I wouldn't because it has so many different disparate definitions now. But if I were to write, in theory, a review and call a film campy, that's not a compliment. That is an actor is trying to be earnest and is laughable. That's to me what campy is. See, Flash I, Gordon, I, I
0: yeah. lean on it more as an aesthetic description. I think it is more a sense of huge theatric At this point, what camp has become is this this theatrical but there, there still has to be a seriousness to it. Like Brian Blessed, the idea of hiring Brian, Brian Blessed to play the King of the Hawkman is a little bit nuts in the first place. But Blessed knows full well how he looks in that costume. And dude, nobody, nobody should be embarrassed for Brian Blessed. He is having the time of his life.
1: Yeah. In the comic books, this guy here is a, uh, a lion man.
0: <laughs> oh, wow.
1: Prince Thun. Yeah, he's a comic man. This character, this actor also had his voice dubbed. I, I didn't. I didn't jot his name down right
0: here. I think there were a lot of um, I think that that in terms of what they could or couldn't do in terms of uh, alien races and stuff, they didn't get to go very far in this movie. And the designs don't really push the non-human things as far as they could. Everything in the Flash Gordon world, especially the film world, very human based or just masks. It's not uh, it's not a lot of makeup stuff here.
1: Uh, and this, uh, uh, the green, the the blood, uh, the blue blood. That always, re- I always remember that little detail. Helps goes, with the
0: PG, man. Yeah, but Helps. I mean,
1: it also like it also just further establishes you got to keep reminding the audience, especially your young audience, that you're in an alien world. And after a while, you're like, oh, these kind of look like humanoid. Nope, blue blood. Oh, oh, good god, ladies and gentlemen.
0: And seven. it keeps it from being too grim. Ornella Muti is, she is as beautiful a woman as we're going to see in any of the movies we cover this day. I mean, day. that
1: face, you couldn't paint a more beautiful face. She's absolutely stunning. And it, there we go. Come along, Fellini. That is your little Fellini reference. And mm-hmm. Fellini being played by Deep Roy, who yep. uh, you'll uh, is in most, everything ever. Yeah. Mo- most movie fans will remember him from the uh, Cho- Charlie and the Chocolate Factory remake, but he's been in probably 200 films.
0: I think I learned his name in Neverending Story. I think that was the year I finally learned. Oh, that's Deep Roy. I got it. Um, again, I. You want to talk about an actor?
1: Yeah, we've glanced over a bunch. We'll, we'll cover these people in in uh, in detail in a bit, but we've covered the beautiful Ornella Muti, who's right there. Uh, Timothy Dalton, of course, the James Bond actor playing the scoundrelish uh, Prince uh, Baron uh, from Arboria. There's also the Drew mentioned the l- brilliantly, awesomely lovable Brian Blessed as the winged Prince Voltan, uh, covered in a mask. You never see his face, but his voice is absolutely fantastic. My favorite character in the whole movie, Klytus. And Drew, you know, what's interesting about Klytus? You know, don't you? Do I? Yeah. Uh, He's awesome? Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I left you up. I I did some research on the comic strip. Klytus was invented for the film.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, Kala... His his uh, his kind of uh, partner in crime. She is it. She is uh, from the comic strip. But Clytus uh, was uh, invented whole cloth for the for the film.
0: Love that sound. Anytime you break a theremin out for a sci fi movie, I'm in.
1: Look at that forced perspective there. How he's kind of caressing her with his glove in in the. In the just a clever little.
0: Well, Von Zito, look, you want to talk about an expert. Von Zito not only understood camera, not only understood performance for stage versus screen. I mean, he was as precise and is as precise an actor. I love the fact that this guy has been around long enough to have been in The Exorcist, to be in the new Star Wars, to be in Flash Court, and in every era seems kind of timeless. Like, it helps that he played an old man when he was very young and played it so well because it is meant now for 50 years he's been the same age
1: yeah i love that what Clytus says there he says indeed she rivals your daughter so i just had a vision of ming as trump and claudis as Dan.
0: oh it's 100 oh it's 100% trump <laughs> this whole relationship with his daughter is so trump
1: All right, no 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 politics um prepare for oh, this is a now as you mentioned earlier drew uh, a good portion of this was kind of I mean, you can't really improv action sequence, but they kind of built this on the day.
0: Yeah, well, and it was a case of somebody pointing out the prop and saying it looked like a football. And, you know, Flash was a polo player in the original comics that by 1980, there that was not an option. You couldn't have made him a polo player. That would have been so bizarre. Um, and there's nothing more American than just down the middle NFL football player or even more college football player. That just seems like such an American thing. And I think that's what Dino was really pushing for, was he wanted an American version of Flash Gordon as the hero. And so then when they came up with the notion of that looks like a football and Flash is a football player, the math seemed really simple. And yet not in the script, not, in a, not an idea that they built to for months,
1: just something they kind of did. And then she's a cheerleader, of course. and And you want to talk about a sequence that, without this score this playful kind of wild orchestral score this scene could play 10 it's yes it's very silly but it's fun well, this it was
0: reshot too this this was the second take on it because the first time around i think dino was terrified of some of the the comedy and some of the more playful side of this there there certainly was a a, a push and pull going on in terms of the production so you know, the fact that they even have it in the final film is a testament to Hodges kind of winning
1: some of those arguments. This, th- that does lead to a different, a really interesting question, Drew. Let, let's go, let's pretend we're in 1980 right now. And we just got out of this film and we both really enjoyed it. We're, we don't know much about the comic strip, but now it's like late 1980 and we're doing this podcast. Wouldn't there be a large contingent of flash Gordon fans who have a legitimate gripe about the changes that were made to this movie?
0: I oh, I'm sure that I'm sure that for uh, for George Lucas this was kind of a nightmare like this is 100% not the movie he would have made or what he probably loved about it. I No,
1: no, but I mean imagine you are the biggest Alex Raymond fan in America.
0: On, yeah, that's what I'm saying is if you're a giant Alex Raymond fan it's not really his. It's it does so much of its own stuff and the tone is so fun and so unabashedly cheeky that yeah, I can see being really turned off by this if you came to it just for the source material. Uh and it doesn't help that for Star Wars fa- or for um for science fiction fans, Alien and Star Wars had just pushed everything into this realistic space where everything kind of looked run down and used and looked like people lived in that universe and that's certainly a flavor of science fiction I love. But it washed away the idea of playful, pretty art deco science fiction almost completely for a while.
1: I, I got I got, like they're holding him up there. It looks so silly. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand why they decided to uh, have, have Zarkov be the one who ends that action scene. That always bothered me, even as a kid. I'm like, it's OK. He got knocked out. But why, why would they make it be him who did it? I don't get it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's uh, well, this is look, this is what happens when you're building things on the day is they don't make a lot of sense sometimes. Yeah, they,
1: Oh, uh, Drew here. I love this stuff right here with Aura and Baron. This is when, you know, you start to realize that, OK, the movie is about Flash and Dale and Dr. Zarkov going into outer space and saving the Earth. But what's fun here is now you're realizing that these people just dropped into a soap opera that's already going on. There's animosity between Voltan and Baron, and there's a a, a, a smoldering romance between Ming's daughter and this this scoundrel uh, outcast of a prince. And you get the uh, I'm sure there's much, much more to it, given that there's voluminous comic strips and comic books of 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 the original source material. But I, I just like the idea that there there was stuff going on before they got here.
0: I love that's crazy. What the mask? Yeah.
1: What a pointless idea that is like why is the mask cap spikes oh, on the outside oh
0: they're the worst oh they're the lizard men hmm. um, yeah like I said the alien stuff
1: did you do any reading on uh, Peter Wingard not really uh, he, uh, he was apparently a very very uh, popular TV actor and then he had some sort of uh, scandal I- involving uh, consensual uh, oh, boy. relationships with a person of the same gender and that caused a big scandal Apparently what a um, different
0: age, man. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But oh man, I don't know much about Peter Wingard, but all I know is even without seeing his face, I just love this performance. I love it.
0: Well, and that's, the, he is, so, uh, it's clear that the Clytus they've designed takes sort of nods from both Darth Vader and from Dr. Doom. And that kind of idea was sort of in pop culture in a big way in the late seventies. Um, but somehow He's his own thing. And I never watching this movie, I never felt like ah, it's just a terrible ripoff. Oh, it's just a-. like Clytus is so funny with Ming and has such a good sort of arc in the film that the design stuff works and you never feel like it's just done for that.
1: All right. Now, now Drew, here's, here's something that, that, that uh, here's a theme that we'll go back to the nostalgia aspect of our show. Um, when you were a kid, like a young kid before star Wars became this mega iconic thing. And it was just a movie or a cu- or a series of movies that you just really liked. And you were young. Was there any major difference between star Wars and flash Gordon? Yes. Okay. There was, I, they were to me cousins. They were like similar films. I just, one I could led watch. me they- to the other, yeah. certainly.
0: And I, I 100% was open to the genre in general. But there was I and I think it's simply because Star Wars was my entry point. Star Wars was first and you dance with who brung you. So that Drew, was why,
1: why have the hourglass go upside down? Why?
0: Oh, because it has to in every pulp adventure, period.
1: Why? It goes upside down. Just what a weird thing to do. I don't know. I <laughs> like it. <laughs> Production design and costumes were not nominated for this film is
0: that's madness
1: astonishing look at that shot right there
0: if you can't at least acknowledge that the visual invention and the insane palette of this film is they made giant choices and took giant gambles and they really pay off like it's lovely
1: it's weird to me though but like this movie i i mean this obviously is a compliment but something about this production design feels italian
0: (laughs) oh definitely Definitely. This feels to me like the kind of thing that would have only been built on a European set and more from the tradition of Fritz Lang and some of the the European sort of fantasy filmmakers who built giant Art Deco sets that you, you would look at in the movies and wonder, I don't know where the line is. I don't know how much they built, but they're nuts. I'm going to guess it's all of it.
1: I, I were you talking? I was just looking at Ornella Muti in a black dress. I'm sorry.
0: Brazil feels like this to me, where you don't know where sets end, and you just got to assume some lunatic built everything. Um, and certainly, when they came on, when Hodges came on, there was an early meeting where they were telling him what they were going to do, and Dino uh, brought out. Like the model for he walked into a madhouse on this film because they were already down the road in terms of production design. They were talking at one point about building a freeway in a forest that they were gonna plant, and on the freeway, they were gonna have cars that were gonna be specially constructed for the film. They had like 13 languages being spoken in the office. And Hodges walked in and they, they were like, Here, and and your star, we found him on a game show on daytime TV.
1: Just craziness people can knock the writing of this movie if they want but man i think that is a great little exchange when she says look water is leaking from her eyes and ming says they're called tears it's a sign of their weakness i I what an evil thing to say what a Ming, the merciless thing to say
0: that's the thing it's lorenzo simple understands how to write fun bad guys and he understands how to write them in an arch tone that really works and you know there is a ton of this dialogue that is great. I'm not kidding when I say that opening exchange is one of my favorite exchanges in film. I think it's terrific, and I think Simple's voice through this whole movie he continually finds very funny ways of saying things. You can hear him clearly. I love this uh, this,
1: this, uh, this guitar lick that kicks in when the uh, this, this, the 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 poison comes out. That just that simple solo guitar lick.
0: It's also paced very much like a serial. They kill Flash five times. They kill Dale five times. They kill everybody. They they get into scrapes they can't get out of. It's very serialized in terms of structure. And I think that that helps with pace because every five or ten minutes, something major happens, and then you have to resolve that. And so it's always pulling you forward. It's you cannot fault them writing what they were hired to write.
1: (laughs) You know what, Drew? I'm not going to sound like Tom Servo here or anything, but I'm noticing what a crazy, elaborate execution and funeral for a, a an interloper immigrant who just arrived yesterday.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at this coffin, dude. I hope I get a coffin like that.
1: Right? Are you kidding me? In most why? Why wouldn't you just put a bullet in his head and throw him in a ditch?
0: <laughs> in fact, Scott, I've just changed my mind. I've always said I want to be cremated. I've changed it. You guys have this now as the legal record. I want to be buried in that coffin. Not one like it. That one, please.
1: I love this. I love that she's got... She's like nailing everybody. The doctor is so in love with her that he'll bring a oh, dead she, man.
0: She's running that city, and I love, I love that there are devil horns cut into her headband.
1: Yeah, she, uh, he ends up dying for his indiscretion here. The doctor, I think Ming mentions it later. The doctor says one of your many lovers, and we're coming up to one of my favorite exchanges in the whole movie. As a kid, this sequence probably bored me to tears, but the bit that's coming up, where they're in the ship together and she's explaining Phrygia and and all how she can do whatever she wants, that's I love it. It's it's sexy, it's funny, and that she that, should have been
0: Catwoman. I saved
1: my God. I've saved you. I've saved you. She's so. She God. should have
0: been a Lorenzo Simple Catwoman. Look at her. She's perfect for it, and she's getting the tone right w- between them.
1: Uh, I, I don't want everybody to think we're just drooling over this woman. She is also legitimately a huge bright spot in this movie. She is. I think she's
0: very funny. I think she she gets what she's been cast for and knows full well. Like I said, she's running the city, and the way she does it and how casually she manipulates everybody around her, she's very, very good
1: at playing the part. And And later, when she gets punished... Even as a kid, even like a prepubescent kid who just looked at her like, wow, she's pretty. And she saved flash. Even then when she, when Ming punishes her, I'm like, not her, get away from her.
0: (laughs) I think Melanie Anderson is playing something. And I, is more stranded, because I think Dale is written more as... Oh, I was
1: going to get to that. I, I One of the... Co- oh, we got to cover this, So of Zarkov being his mind being erased. But well, That's I as classic
0: think- an image as there is in pulp. Somebody tied to a table with a giant thing pointed at them.
1: Yeah, this whole sequence is fascinating. And I, I, I don't know what films, but research indicates that a lot of the footage that we see on the screen is quick images of films that Chaim Topol was in earlier. Oh, that's weird. Yeah.
0: I did not know that.
1: But it's a horrifying sequence watching him, them, uh, you know, r- erase his memories all the way back to childhood in another science fiction film. That could take up a half an hour, and, and you could really delve into the the interesting ideas there. And this movie just throws it away in tw- 10 minutes. There you go. Here's something fun. Uh,
0: and these two together, you, you want to talk about just professionals these guys are so good that in this one scene both of them are mobile basically well and von zaito god bless him most of these costumes he's walking around in are so heavy that they got like 10 15 minutes of standing up time before they had to put him somewhere and the hawkman were the same way just those gear the gear they're wearing is so insanely heavy that i think they had to lay face down or on uh, tilting boards like they used to in the old dresses
1: yeah yeah that's interesting there's all there's uh, i had read that 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 uh, th- that the production was, you know, uh, quote unquote, a nightmare, but the only, the only, in my research, the only troubles I could find were that it, it went slightly over budget, uh, that there was major cost, uh, a major, uh, language barrier and Sam Jones was kind of a, an asshole.
0: And- yeah. And his problem was more like they, they were worried at a certain point about his face because he really liked to fight. So. Um, that was just, I would, as a producer, I'd be terrified of my actor messing his face up, oh my god.
1: Yeah, uh, one one note that I did want to mention for our listeners uh, who might not know, uh, that while this is the first feature film based on Flash Gordon, uh, there were three serials, one in 1936, one in 1938, one in 1940, um, and those are called simply Flash Gordon, and then the second one is Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars, and the third one is uh, Flash Gordon conquers the universe and drew who played flash gordon in those serials
0: uh buster crab
1: buster crab oh there she is one of my uh, another one of my favorite characters kala that is a an, a great italian actress named mariangela melato
0: yep who we're going to talk about on the actual podcast very soon
1: I don't know much about her, but man, she is another wonderfully evil hench person. I love when a villain has multiple hench people, just yep. like when I, I like when a hero has multiple sidekicks. I, I you know I love it when a, he, a a bad villain has like one henchman who's the tech person and one henchman who's the muscle. And one henchman who's the, the you know I love that. And uh, this, this movie- is
0: surprisingly heavy considering what movie it's in. There's a lot of Hitler imagery. I'm okay. That's enough Hitler, please.
1: Wow, that it goes by pretty quick, and the uh, I think uh, <laughs> the, the adult the adults in the audience will appreciate that. <laughs> this is weird, yeah. Uh, what I don't love about this is how how uh, si- how casually he blows off the brainwashing later. I I think that's kind of a screenwriting cheat because like we're meant to believe that his his brain has now been wiped.
0: He's Zarkov, darn it! You can't wipe his brain,
1: right? But then it's just like, oh, by the way, I thought of a Beatles song and I was fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm fine with it because it's that kind of movie, but eh, it's a little flimsy. And I like that there. There's a. What is that, Drew? Is that a huh. is that are they are they a thing, Colitis and Kala? The way he held her chin there?
0: Oh, I think so. I think you don't just get matching armor. If you're not like serious about somebody, I mean come on. Scott, we didn't get matching armor until year two of the podcast.
1: When they uh when they make out, does he take off the armor? The face mask?
0: everything but the face mask. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. And I you know what I love
0: here? That they're flying through a Yes album cover.
1: Yeah, no, I love the background so much, but what I really love here is not only that she rescued him and she's now claimed him as her toy, she dressed him like her.
0: <laughs> the best part of that is that means that she keeps a wardrobe just in case.
1: Her boy toy has to wear the outfit she wears. That's beautiful.
0: I'm telling you, those devil horns are no accident. That is the best piece of costume design.
1: Beautiful shot. That is a yes album cover right there. <laughs> James
0: Cameron, we're looking at you. I see floating islands.
1: Yep, yep.
0: Oh, uh, no! I do love the the matching uh, outfits. I think that obviously, she's got a wardrobe full of them somewhere in sizes for any of the various men she might hypnotize and turn into sex slaves.
1: What? Um, um, Yeah. What? uh, (laughs) How many people in this movie is she? (laughs) She's with the (laughs) doctor. She's with (laughs) Prince Baron. Um, I get the idea that Clytus kind of has the hots for her. Uh, It's the last thing. The last thing that I saw Ornella Moody in was the Azia Argento film. The heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, And. I was so happy to see her in that. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's obviously done a lot of work in Italy and a lot of stuff I haven't seen. But uh, when she popped up in that, I went, oh my God, Princess Aura. And she's, of course, still beautiful and a very good actor.
0: Um, Real quick, since this is a scene that is heavy on the cloud, or that scene was heavy on the cloud tank stuff, um, that cloud tank effect, it's so weird that there was an era that was kind of defined by it. And you can almost name all the movies that are cloud tank movies. And then it just stopped. It was one of those things that there was an era where directors really loved leaning on it. I know Spielberg loved it, man. Close Encounters has some great ones. Raiders of the Lost Ark has some great ones. There is something about the cloud tank that just makes me very, that is for me, nostalgia button almost more than anything else we'll see in this film is because that is such an, such a, there is a definite end point where suddenly we stop doing that at all.
1: Yeah, I love this bit how she explains to him how their telepathy phone works. She's like, <laughs> I'm going to call Baron on my telepathy phone.
0: If you want, I mean. Um,
1: uh, what, what, yeah, but we were going to talk about um, how Dale and Flash in particular are kind of thinly drawn. Let's
0: it's, say. it's hard because they are the straights in a world of freaks. And so everybody else gets to play something more interesting. Everybody else gets more to do. Everybody else is defined by their quirks and their weirdnesses and their visual style. And both flash and Dale are by necessity duller. And I feel for Melody Anderson because you see her in this movie struggling to find things to do and ways to play it and what she wants to do to keep Dale interesting and quirky and real When it's not on the page necessarily, that's a man. That is a tightrope act for an actor.
1: I think that's partially why I like the early stuff with Dale because she she outsmarts the handmaiden. She she shows a little moxie. She can fight a bit, and you know that she's she's not just a a damsel. Uh, And then once they escape, she kind of just becomes, you know, the cheerleader for the rest of the movie. But um, you know. She's a thinly drawn character, but Melody Anderson is a a charming actor, so that helps a lot.
0: I'm pretty sure my buddy dated a girl who used to do this exact same thing to him when he would call home to talk to his parents to say he was staying out later uh, just to see what would happen. That's not cool, man. Let him use the psychic phone.
1: This is too sexy for a PG movie. He's on the psychic phone. Forget I said anything. What does he say? This girl is really turning (laughs) me (laughs) on. That's ridiculous. You know, he gets a lot of slack. I shouldn't say slack. I should say flack. Sam Jones gets a lot of flack for this movie, but he's actually pretty good. Like his reactions in that sequence where he's like talking to one woman while he's making out with another woman. Like he's, he's, you know, he's no Olivier, but he's better than uh, I think the reputation indicates.
0: Well, you know, Russell, when he turned it down, it was because he felt like on the page there was nothing there for him to do. And I I feel like a guy like Kurt Russell, what he might have found a way to do in this is what he's done in movies like, you know, Big Trouble in Little China or the, the Carpenter films he's done where he is the hero. But there's such a weirdness to him that it would have somehow made him more interesting and more alive. You know, I. I. I do, I really wonder if he had played a straight hero up front, how much it would have changed for him.
1: Uh, I I did go out to Twitter earlier and ask people, if you were recording a Flash Gordon commentary, uh, what would you include? And I said, and don't mention Queen. Uh, And I've gotten a lot of good notes, most of the stuff I already knew, but um, one person did mention that we should at least give some credit to um, Howard Blake's music. Like, for example, the cue we just heard of that blaring violin and trumpet You're like there is a bit of traditional orchestral a non-queen music in this movie and that was all done by howard blake and it's quite good
0: yeah absolutely and i think it's necessary for the film to, to you know this was queen's first shot at even trying something like this so they'd never done it they didn't know how much it required they didn't I think what a lot of people don't realize is how much score is. These shoe miniature leather.
1: shots are so good. That one shot we just saw a couple seconds ago of the of the ship going left to, uh, state, uh, screen left to right, kind of zooming down onto the planet Arboria. It's. Uh, I don't care if you're doing CG practical. I don't care what it is. That shot is perfect.
0: It's oh, I'm telling you, this is this is the superstar lineup of those guys. Nobody has ever had a better model crew or a model crew that I think has defined an entire like section of science fiction as heartily as they did
1: this is a crazy model shoot this is a creepy moment here dude i know we're jumping from left to right but he comes in to think he's going to get some action from his new prisoner and then he sees that it's the handmaiden and he says you and what that tells me is he knows her Oh yeah. <laughs> he's he knows this woman he's not like who are you
0: Oh dude, no, this culture, it's pretty clear that Ming has had everyone in the palace. That's what Ming does.
1: I, she smiles at him, like, shut up, Dick.
0: <laughs> I honestly think the most interesting thing about Dale Arden to him is she's new.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And exotic. She ain't from around there. Uh and I love this outfit. Look how stupid that I mean, like I mean, it's beautiful, but I mean like, you know, in, in the uh in the realm of the, the world, to make a to make a person wear that. <laughs> And the design of these guys with the long snout—what is that? It is so. It look, makes them look like little dragons in a way. It's Stormtroopery, but not Stormtroopery, But it's Grendel. That's what it reminds me of. And I love that uh, all of a sudden Dale Arden has a little, just a bit of karate skills. And oh, she can shoot.
0: Well, and that's the thing is I don't. I I don't think they wanted to write her as an action icon, and I think. Melanie Anderson really pushed to not be useless and not be helpless. And it's that, you know, it's these little pushbacks that started to define these characters in different ways.
1: And I think it's the actors. We all get the template of, you know, male hero and his quote unquote mate or. But like, there's no reason that your female lead can't also be heroic and strong. They can rescue each other at certain moments, but. There's no reason in the world for one character to just be co- perpetually Willie Scott.
0: <laughs> no. And I, and I think what, what happened was you got actors like Karen Allen and you got actors like Melanie Anderson and you got actors like Carrie Fisher who simply wouldn't play that and couldn't play that and just weren't going to be able to fit in that mold. And that's why the characters started to expand and change. I think the actors pushed the filmmakers forward in some ways.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, Drew, last time we did an audio commentary, I went out to a bunch of filmmakers and got some feedback. Uh, This time I didn't feel like harassing all that many people, but I did go out to a particular filmmaker who is a huge fan of this film. And that is uh, Mr. Edgar Wright. Of course. Our our listeners will, of course, know from Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, and the upcoming Baby Driver, which you've seen. Which is awesome. And I have not, so shut your face hole. And awesome. I, ju- I just said to him, uh, sir, could I throw you, could you throw us a quick thought about Flash Gordon? His response was, there are no quick thoughts about Flash Gordon. Perfect. And he, <laughs> he said, I'd say, I do not classify it as a guilty pleasure. It knows exactly how funny and uh, fun and funny it is, and that's why I love it. And Queen's music hits the tone perfectly, too.
0: God, I can't imagine a world where Edgar Wright couldn't use Queen in movies. And- yeah certainly a big part of why that's even possible is this film.
1: Yeah. It, uh, you know, I, it's easy to see, uh, why a film like this would be a huge inspiration to filmmakers of our approximate age or perhaps a bit younger than you and I, where it just like you would chance upon this when you were like, you know, you and I both knew it because it came out and moved the theaters and it was promoted, a big sci-fi movie. And we, as young kids, wanted to go see it. But imagine you're like 16 or 17 and it just popped up on cable and you're halfway through it and you go, oh my God, look at this overhead shot of this tree with these guys. What am I watching? This is beautiful, and now all of a sudden, you are now a Flash Gordon fan. The craftsmanship on display in this movie is undeniable.
0: Uh, this is a, this is an amazing setting, and you know, you I would actually say compare this to the the treetop stuff that we see for the Ewoks. I think these sets are absolutely amazing.
1: I I love this long, long tracking shot setting yeah. up the whole village on Arborea. Uh, it, it really just with with. with
0: Hodges was careful to show you how much they built, and he really took advantage of the depth of the sets to use his camera. I Look, I think Hodges actually has a real sharp eye, and in almost every scene in this movie, he does the work. For, he is absolutely steering the audience. I think little kids can watch this movie, get everything, and yet not feel hammered by the adult stuff that's also there. It's a really direct and clear and expressive film. And uh, that is a testament to Hodges having a clear vision for how to shoot, even in the midst of the chaos that happened on set.
1: All right. This is uh, as the Arborean priest. Love this scene. Playwright named John Osborne. And uh, the young gentleman here about to uh, stick his arm in the tree is a gentleman named Peter Duncan, who went on to become a very well-known UK children's TV host.
0: Oh, my God. I love this scene. And that thing is Crazy. That was a great design. Totally true. Who
1: else we're going to see on planet Arborea is Richard O'Brien.
0: Yep. Who was evidently a handful on set and took full advantage of the fact that Mike Hodges loved him.
1: Yeah. And Richard O'Brien, of course, most people will know as Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show.
0: Funny how much of this I'm like itching. Okay. So we've got uh, we've got Kala is in one of the movies we're about to cover on 80s all over. Uh, Richard O'Brien we're about to talk about. It's so much stuff that. I love this era because it's all interconnected. And right now, because we're doing the podcast, it all feels very alive and fresh to me again.
1: Yeah, uh, it's just uh, watching it with adult eyes. Yeah, I can never obviously divorce it from my childhood. But as hard as I try to just, you know, watch it with adult analytical film critic eyes, I see the flaws. I see the warts and I just see so much more that's worthy of praise i see so much more look how striking she looks and that red outfit against that completely green background you know just something as simple as that really strikes me you know
0: well, look at dalton dalton's a uh, literally he's like an errol flynn matinee idol in in this he is there's a reason that in the rocketeer he's so perfect playing errol flynn basically uh and it's because he is he's he was born to be that dude in movies
1: Look at this! Look, look! He's immediately jealous. Oh lying. yeah! I love lying, bitch. Well,
0: because he he looks directly at the outfit and he's like, "I know, I think I wore that."
1: Yeah, yeah. why are you wearing the his and the his the his <laughs> and her? I am pretty
0: sure I've worn that exact like, outfit. Oh, okay. What is he wearing? My underwear too?
1: That's not cool. That's not cool. And she doesn't even care. There's no shame. She's not hiding it. You she know? She's the boss.
0: Yeah, this is I think that's something that definitely you can't put your finger on it as a kid. You can't identify it. But the film definitely had a European feel and a European sensibility that was very different than Star Wars. And that's why I think there there was a definite difference in my mind is it's not a bad difference. It's not like a negligible difference. Star Wars spoke to me more directly first. But this I like the fact that this felt European. The fa- I like the fact that it felt like people in this universe probably got naked I never thought that about Star Wars. Star Wars is a very chaste universe in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I love that. What does he say there? Is everybody here a psychopath, a lunatic? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, now here we get the, the explanation of how he avoided the brainwashing. And it just, it's like, you could see them come to set and go, ah, shit, uh,
0: that's how serials work, though.
1: Like, How do we explain away that he got his brainwashed? I don't know. Dude, write something. <laughs> that's
0: every serial. Every serial cheated. You see the hero blow up. You know he didn't escape. And then you go back the next week and he jumped 10 seconds earlier. And you're like, no, he didn't. I saw he didn't jump. No.
1: Yeah, no, it's Andy Wilkes. He didn't get out of the cock. <laughs> and
0: see, I think that's I think, if anything, simple's
1: being completely real to what they asked him to write. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and, and, uh, Dalton here represents my favorite of my favorite trope in adventure type movies is the villain or not even villain, but adversary who sees the error of his ways and comes to fight with the heroes. I absolutely love that trope and it, it can't be the main character. It has to be a side character and, uh, Dalton does it so well. And, and I think that, that his performance in this movie is part of the reason why I love that idea so much. Uh, and now we get into something really nasty. We get... Look at this image.
0: Yeah, all of a sudden, I'm very uncomfortable. And I'm not sure I dislike it. It's... This is one weird... Like I said, it's very European. The movie, suddenly, you're watching a film that at 10 i didn't totally get everything that was happening, but wow, it
1: was certainly memorable and that shot there. What is that? Get a stop stop you know, show us that angle from the back of her lever b i'm looking at i honestly I'm looking at
0: the crazy hands on the table and sort of that beauty and the beast art design no
1: it, it's bring it, me the worms.
0: uh, the best
1: I love how her voice cracks here, Father damn you and g her voice like cracks.
0: That's the other thing is, I don't get the feeling this is the first time things have gone this
1: horribly wrong in this family. Look at that face. Oh, she's so wonderfully angry. I love her. Ming's, Ming's not good. Ming's not a good dad. No, I love the idea here that, like, they said, all right, look, what we need here is a table to hold prisoners down. And they're like, got it, got it. And he says, no, no, wait, wait, not just hold them down. I want the restraints to be golden fists.
0: I pr- I prefer to think of it as an actual language barrier where they said, you know, the the table it, it like hands holding her down and they went fine and they built hands and they went
1: oh, okay. Right. No, I just wanted two extras <laughs> to hold her down. <laughs> Here he is. Here's Richard O'Brien.
0: I really wish he'd had a better like character career cuz I do think he's he's remarkably uh, he's a remarkable visual presence, and he's got this weird, great puckish sense of humor that I I wish more directors had taken advantage of him.
1: Yeah, and this this, this to me is more of that, more of the stuff like with Aura and Baron, where it's like there's all this politics going on that Flash is now uh, inadvertently inserted into, and then now they're all trying to like Baron doesn't really hate Flash, he just wants he, he does he's a newcomer, he doesn't trust him, and he'd rather use him to his advantage you know
0: man i can't think of a worse gig than being in that hawkman costume in that water like those costumes must have been nightmares anyway yeah yeah i'm just gonna drown for real because this is like 45 pounds on my back thanks right
1: i mean like does the film need this little sub -sub subplot of baron (laughs) sends fico is that his name down Sends fico down To, like, entice him out so he has the legitimate reason to kill him? That's funny. Right? Like, is that the plan?
0: Sort of. I don't know.
1: Oh, but we're coming up to my favorite creature in the movie. Oh, God, I love it. It's just that giant bubble that envelops him. (laughs) Great set. How many? Yeah. Great set. How great many set. times?
0: And how crazy tall is that set? Yeah. That's something. I mean, so often sets were built low so that, you know, you don't have to tilt. it. there's not a sh- scene in this where you can't tilt the camera up, down, look around. like he really built giant environments and took the, full advantage of the height of sound stages.
1: Another great shot. Him standing there posing with the sword and the red and the guy and then Colitis in the foreground. Beautiful shot. Now, Von um,
0: Zaito, you want to talk about a guy who got what he was doing? There's a guy who read the strips when he was young. There's
1: a Kubrick shot right there. Him, him shot from him from the yeah. torso up with the with the big laser behind him. That's a great shot. Anyway, we're just going to sit here and talk about like individually great shots for the next hour uh, um,
0: because it's cheesy and terrible. Oh yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh,
1: I, I truly hope that you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, that people you know critics like Drew and I are able to I don't know shed a different light on movies that are generally considered bad for some reason. I like, just
0: want people to stop using the terms. Just just stop with guilty pleasures. I think the worst thing film criticism
1: did was tell people that. More so is just respect films and think for yourself. If yeah. if you if you hear me saying I love Flash Gordon and you watch 15 minutes and it doesn't work for you and you just don't like it then don't watch it. Like you don't have like that's fine. It's just like it's not your cup of tea. It doesn't speak to you. That's what art is uh, just like something else, a song or a painting or a film might not oh, speak to
0: me. Oh, here comes Blessed. Finally yeah, finally we get real Brian like he's not in enough of the film at the beginning he's not enough of the film period but once he finally gets to come back and we get to the Hawkman and the Hawkman get to take center stage for a little while he is uh, the time of his life I love actors like this who are just like oh man I'm going for it you're gonna put
1: me in wings great force of nature he is amazing Uh, I also read a little piece of trivia that I don't know if it's true or not but when he like pinched her butt there that was not planned
0: Well, and he comes from that Shakespearean background, so he fills a stage when he speaks. Oh, wonderful.
1: Brian Blessed, if you uh, have a multi region DVD player or are listening outside of America, you'll be happy to know that uh, Brian Blessed contributes a solo commentary track on the UK DVD of Flash Gordon. I hope it's uh,
0: just two hours of him going, Ha!
1: Ha! The bit from the song, (laughs) Gordon's Alive. Oh, he's wonderful. Uh, and yeah, he, so here's the the, you know the the gambit was to get him to escape and then test him and then and then he basically I think he wants to be able to kill Gordon and but not have. Orr, yeah, but not have or get pissed at him and freeze yeah. him out of bed. Hey, what was I going to do, man?
0: He was escaping. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I made him put his hand in the hole.
1: great god Arbor, uh, their name. And I love or-
0: this test. I think this is one of those, it's one of those memorable secrets. Sequ- that's another thing is uh, when I hear people talk about bad movies, to me, bad, mem- bad movies are truly unmemorable movies. Oh, movies god. that just, they don't stick to you. An hour after you've seen it, you're like, I couldn't tell you how it started. I don't remember Flash Gordon is nothing if not memorable, and a big mm-hmm. part of that is that it's got so many great set pieces. This is a great set piece. The oh, Hotton's I love the, the macho here,
1: where he at first he's like a smart person says, "I'm not sticking my hand in that thing," and then and then Baron says, "I'll do it," and then without another word, Gordon's like, "All right." <laughs> and I love that they
0: show you the the center of it, and that they, they constantly it's. Yeah, they build suspense really well here. Hodges knows how to keep playing this scene. And again, for a 10-year-old, this is terrifying. No, no.
1: You know what it is? To a 10-year-old, this is Hitchcock. This is the like pinnacle. Uh, I mean, it's the ultimate and simple. It's a monster in a hole, and we're going to have characters put their hand in the hole. It is like some of the most simplistic. Conceptually, it is simplistic, but... It is done so beautifully here that, and, and it's, you know, it's made for a younger audience. So it's like, it doesn't have to be brain surgery. It can be simple. And Baron just keeps pushing him. And, and, you know, we get to this point now where the villain or the adversary decides, Hey, you know what? I was wrong. He's won me over with his honor or bravery or call it what you will. Um, I think they should
0: have ended the scene with then Flash having to reach in and try to find the monster hiding inside
1: Timothy Dalton's chin cleft, because good God, if this movie was made by Michael Bay, he'd pull out a Mountain Dew right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it. Oh, Flash dies here. You should probably cut your whole body off. Flash dies here, everybody. Just all right. Thanks for listening to our commentary. I know this movie has a bummer of an ending, but that's what you know. That's Mike Hodges for you.
0: Yep, that was a surprise. I remember in the theater going, that's it. Flash dies. Oh,
1: wait, what?
0: Uh, He's fucking with you.
1: I love this. Flash Gordon. There's another great cue here as he jumps down. You hear like boom. Right. Right here it comes. He's mine. Oh, that heavy drums. And yeah, all this stuff was shot. was all built in studio. Uh, uh, Shepparton? I don't know. Yeah, um, they
0: did. She- Shepparton was where they, they were going to try and use the Italian stages, uh, which I think was why De Laurentiis wanted to do it was just for the, the money investment in those stages. And Shepparton ended up being where they did it.
1: Yeah, I, I this this music here. I don't know. This I assume is was the uh, the traditional composer. But this is some great music here.
0: Man, there was a lot of quicksand in movies when we were kids.
1: I know. I tweeted that a few months ago that uh, when uh, TV and movies made me think that quicksand would be a lot more prevalent in life yeah, than it actually like I, is. It, it,
0: was ter- it was really, you were sure that it was just everywhere when you got older. And so far ever percent quicksand free in my actual real life.
1: Nope, never actually seen real quicksand.
0: <laughs>
1: right, and, and you know it just the I love the idea, and, and Spielberg is so good at this too. Obviously, is that it's just a series of okay, he escapes, he the monster in the tree, then he escapes, then he falls into quicksand, then he pulls himself out with a vine, then he gets you'll see. <laughs> but I the, mean, it's just difference-
0: like. It's funny because the difference really is, and it's, it's a, a matter of execution. This is what makes somebody either an Olympic level athlete or somebody who does who's just really athletic. And when Spielberg designs these scenes, it's a million little gains and payoffs and gains and payoffs. And he knows how to, within a sequence, have the big ones, but then have a series of like 40 small ones. And
1: what is that? So a lot
0: of people. That's great. That's actually, I, I think, a terrific monster. So well-designed.
1: It's just a bubble with spider legs. Oh, it's horrifying. Well now,
0: you know that there was originally, because Flash, Flash is supposed to be kind of tripping at this point.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, right. Yeah. the uh, a, a dream sequence where uh, Dale turns into a spider.
0: I'd love to see that makeup, man. I would love to see what they designed for her. And I guess evidently Hodges looked at it once and went, No. But I would love to see what they designed because she was supposed to appear to him and be all crazy and look like a spider herself. And oh, nuts, look man. at
1: that ship! I like how cool that is. It's the best. That's actually that's great.
0: Um, and I, you know, again, I wish that people had indulged both flavors of science fiction throughout the '80s and been willing to go stylized and beautiful and impractical and strange. As often as they were willing to go for the everything's a truck driver, you know the, yeah. the alien aesthetic.
1: Oh, well, you know what happens is something comes out and is greatly popular, and instead of saying, "Hey, wow, sci-fi is hot again let's let's try our own take on so, uh, the sci-fi adventure," it's instead of that, it's most people just say, "Copy that to as close as you can without getting sued," without you know?
0: understanding that you know the the whole thing. I. And it's funny because a lot of people will say over and over that uh, that Star Wars is, oh, I Kurosawa's all. Well, yeah, but I, I think Flash Gordon is bigger than Kurosawa, like right down to the opening crawl and stuff that he lifted aesthetically. There's a shitload that Lucas took from the original Flash Gordon, like directly took. And, you know, I, I think it's weird that he uh, his very pure love got filtered into the thing that was his that that really had its own spirit and its own feel and instead of realizing that it was the love that he had for the material that was what we all responded to they just kept trying to steal from the same source or steal from him and it's never that's never going to do it it's always going to be if you come at it from a sense of i want to make this because i'm so excited i get to make this that's going to be better
1: yeah, he said the lunatic asylum. I love the asides that that he does it a couple times in the movie where he's like, "This place is a lunatic asylum." That's what you and I would say. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I love is that this whole set is virtually is basically white and silver, but yet every character has their own. You know, uh, uh, Baron and his guys are all brown and green. Uh, Flash has that orange T-shirt. She's golden. Uh, Bar- I mean, uh, uh, Baron is like that light green. They're all very distinctive. And, and.
0: Well, if you want to make the thematic argument, you could say that the, the reason that the palace is very washed out in white and silver here is so that we get it thematically that all of these colors are finally united, where throughout the movie, that's what makes Ming work is he keeps them separate.
1: Yeah, very good. And yeah, there is a lot of that. And, you know, it, oh, the idea... This. I love this sequence. It's a great fight, and it's got some great little gimmicks in it. And like you said, I, I love the idea of the, the they don't bang on this drum too hard in the film. But it's these were all kind of warring or or tr- tribes who didn't get along, didn't like each other, oh yeah, and, and uh, either hate each other or just tolerated each other. And now you know show you know like the the noble hero who shows up and is willing to fight back, gives all these people the, the, you know, the bravery to do it themselves. And you know, it's done in a very simple fashion here, but it's very effective, too.
0: Did you, um, when you were a kid, I, I assume you had Star Wars figures. Mm. Did you have the collector's cases, like the, the plastic cases with the silver trays? And then when you flip the trays over?
1: I had the normal rectangle-sized case. I never had the Vader head case.
0: Okay, so the rectangle-sized case, when you pull those silver trays out and you flip them over, they had pegs on the back for them to stand right, on. Right. For years, I would use those to play this scene. And I would have the pegs that were coming out of the collector's case be the spikes that they would be rolling back and forth over. And it's crazy how like these things would end up being incorporated into the the larger sense of play that I had as a kid. But this scene was just gigantic like i i loved that notion of the tilting spiked platform
1: yeah, yeah 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 it's interesting because uh it adds an edge to Voltan too because it's like oh he's on their side well maybe not entirely you know yeah. like he's on his side
0: yeah uh, he's just having fun this is just entertainment um and what love, but this did, no but
1: if this movie was written today if you and I wrote this movie, we'd get notes from the producer that says, why would Voltan put spikes up? Isn't he trying to help Flash? This doesn't make yeah. any sense. And it's like, yeah. yeah, well, they have different value systems in this universe than we do, I guess, you know? Yeah,
0: I don't think he's particularly, I think he's just enjoying himself at this point. He wants to see what's going to happen. And he's no big fan of Baron, that's for sure. Yeah.
1: And what I love here is that the, the more you hate Baron in this sequence, the more you like him when he changes yep. his stripes. You know? He's a
0: badass. He's really good. Um, mm-hmm. Flash, Flash is just kind of a lug. Um, by all rights, Baron should have won this fight. It's no, his no, he fight. does.
1: He does. Baron does win this fight. I mean, like, in every way except the final. I mean, like, Baron kicks his ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then some. Um, and then you got to give him a line to like tell people he's just you know, if you kill me, promise you'll team up and fight me. And then that's all Baron needs to hear. It's like, oh, you know, I get it. I'm fighting the wrong fucking guy.
0: Yeah. Um, Another thing that this did, just like Star Wars and just like Raiders, was it introduced me to pulp ideas that were new to me, although at the time they were already cultural artifacts and cliches that had riff upon riff upon riff already played on them. So... I think a lot of what I loved was that this stuff played the pulp so straight and didn't treat it like I was already supposed to know everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't winking at me or trying to be smarter than me. It played it, all these movies played pulp in such a way that I was allowed then to fall in love with pulp and go back and find the other stuff and then see how it all played through it. But I think if they had been making fun of it or if they'd been too like arch about all this, I wouldn't have, lo- I wouldn't have loved it.
1: Oh, I oh, watch it, Baron.
0: Oh God! Oh,
1: oh, no! Spike and crotch. Uh, I love. Wait. Oh, it's so corny, but I love the way she says "Oh, Flash." It is so nineteen thirties, but it's she she delivers it so well.
0: Yeah, I, I credit these things for for leading me to the stuff that I love, and I have a real love of like old Doc Savage and and the original comics and stuff. For these, I. I like that because it is so sincere and earnest and played at such a breakneck pace. It has a really different flavor than anything we do now.
1: Yep. And here, you know, and, and again, this is sort of speaking on a, on a fan, like a 12, 14, 16 year old who's watching this movie. You're getting the idea of they hated each other. He did something kind. And now they're getting along. Like, that i know i'm probably reading in you know to, to these things too much but that's you know. a good lesson that's a good mm. lesson for children even if they don't actively get that lesson even if it gets in unconsciously like that's a noble
0: another good uh, lesson for children is if you're if you're able to have Brian bless its legs and feel confident enough to play a hawkman like this yeah. dude go for it
1: oh man Brian is Brian cool. is
0: rocking that costume and there is very little of it
1: all right <laughs>
0: I'm if impressed. you uh,
1: if you ever want to nail down uh, when act 3 begins, I I guess you would say what act 3 begins when they throw him onto the spikes and kill him? Yeah.
0: Well, and this this just kicks off. this from here on out now, the rest of the movie feels Pretty much nonstop, like they. But it, like they, that's
1: what I love, Drew. It, it the whole thing is nonstop. Before this, we had the fight on the disc. Before that, we had him in Arborea Before that, I mean, like yeah, he had yeah. the like it doesn't stop. The set pieces just keep coming.
0: Well, and that's what I mean by memorable is if, if any of that was just incidental nonsense, but it feels like each thing is so different and each. Oh, and I love what happens to him. This is very Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yes. Great, very theatrical pull, and then the eyes ooze out. Oh, well, Kalidas, you evil bastard.
0: Okay, that's what happens when you poke a hole in him. Holy shit! What's
1: he full of? Yeah, I that think is that, awful. Yeah, he's just some kind of evil monster, man. Yeah. Now, what's no, yo, know, what's no, what's great here is that you assume that when Baron and Flash get along, that Voltan's like, cool. Let's all team up. And at this point, no, there's another conflict. You just brought ruin on my house, you asshole. Like, I love that. It was like... Hey, man, don't kill the bag. Don't kill Ming's dude at my house. Yeah. yeah it's like, you. obviously, you know that Voltan is a good heart, but he's now scared. And you, you know, like, that's there's another roadblock in, uh, before the, uh, the big unification happens.
0: Bugging out, I work
1: here. You are fucking my shit up. Right? Um... The hunter becomes the hunted. (laughs) Oh, what a great actor Brian Blessed is. Oh, God.
0: And I love the Hawkman. I love the waves of Hawkman. Look, when we're talking Wizard of Oz, uh, this is one of those images that feels directly connected to my childhood in a way where when I saw this, it set off that resonance of the flying monkeys and those skies full of them and how crazy that was. And I love the fact that this
1: is very (laughs) look, look, that shot right there. That's four action heroes right there. I love that. The four of them in the frame like that. It's just just a nice, simple shot of the four heroes. I love it.
0: Well, even though this is a a remake of something from the 30s, and even though technology had changed to some degree, it's still very connected to the way films were made in the 30s. There's a lot of the tricks and visual stuff that they do here that's directly from those old movies. So it's not even like they had done something so remarkably different. They just did it on a scale that the Flash Gordon movies and serials could never have done.
1: I, I, you know, I would not compare the two, but I think in the realm of of like updating serialized adventures, I think Flash Gordon does share a, a bit of DNA with Raiders of the Lost Ark.
0: Uh, I think so. I think in in the sense that they were both aching for a pace, and they both wanted like really sincere characters at the the heart of it. Um, I think the difference was. Uh, and, and this is just, again, not good, not bad, but it's Simple versus Kasdan. When you look at what Semple did and how he handled this kind of stuff versus what Kasdan did, I think they were in love with different people. I think Semple loved kind of the big and the theatrical and the arch, whereas Kasdan loved like the the Howard Hawks sort of uh, talky 30s rapport kind of thing. So they were they were chasing different things, but the impulses are very much the yeah, same. Yeah,
1: I I think what I mean is that I'm getting from the film, both filmmakers, that, you, like, for example, Flash Gordon, you don't make something so vibrant and colorful and fast-paced and energetic if you don't love that stuff. Like, you yeah. know, like, when you don't love and you don't put forth the real effort, your movies come out lazy. They don't come out fast-paced and colorful, <laughs> you know? They, they come out lazy and gray, uh, Look at and the eyebrows on him, holy crap! I love love the like the the, the big globe and the shiny curtains com- contrasted with his black helmet and his red. Uh, it, it's just, the thing is just a a, a celebration of color. It, it really his is. His eyebrow
0: goes to the middle of his head.
1: Yeah, Max. I think you keep saying Von Zidow. I think his name is pronounced Max Von Seidel. That's that's how I've always said it, Max Von Seidel. He's exceptional. He's immortal. He's a legend. He is among. The finest actors who ever lived, he is like, put him on a, a level with like a Christopher Lee for genre fans, put him on a level of like Laurence Olivier for straight drama. He is, I'm grateful to have watched Max von Sydow throughout my life. He is a
0: droid. well, And he's part of one of the greatest magic tricks of all time. The idea that Dick Smith's old old man makeup was as accurate as it was. Because how many times have we seen old man makeup on somebody young and they get old and
1: you finally see them and you go, nah. Everybody thinks Max von Sydow has been 75. For 40 years because of the exorcist. Yeah. But he ended up looking
0: exactly like that. And that's rare. Like a lot of times you see old man makeup and people get there and they're like, not that. You're right.
1: He aged into his exorcist makeup. You're
0: like to the point where now if you if you set them side by side, you would think that's impossible. He is the greatest magic. It really is just mind boggling. And I love, I love the notion of flying cities like this. That was, that was another part of what made this so. Um, you know, and you know what,
1: Drew? Here's another thing I love. This is just a little screenwriting thing. Maybe I'm crazy here, but in another adventure movie, if this was made today, the fact that there is a rocket cycle hidden beneath the, 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 the fighting arena would have to be telegraphed twice. Yeah. You, you like they get in the room and and, and Voltan would say, oh, "Stay away from my rocket cycle." And then (laughs) and then, you know, uh, you'd have uh, Dale saying, if you fall in, try and grab that rocket cycle. But in this movie, it doesn't matter. Yes, there happens to be a rocket cycle where he needs it. You know why? Because it's an adventure movie. Stupid. Like, that's it.
0: (laughs) And you see that shot. Nobody got away. Yeah. We're going to go back. Somebody got away. And again, no apology. That is how serial language works. You are allowed to do that. You can cheat. You can kill him three times, and then magically, he just barely got away. You can do it over and over, and it's not breaking the rules, and it's not bullshit. It's what they're doing. That's the point.
1: I love this bit here. It's the oldest screenwriting trick in the book, where it's, you know, I can't help a man who's dead. Click, Voltan. This is Flash Gordon. Come in. You know, uh, it's so simple, but it works. It works for kids. It works for adults. It's like he's having this. Art. He's having this moral. He's having this moral dilemma now because he thinks he let Flash die. And now that he has a sec now that he has a second chance, he is now 100% on board because he felt th- he's got a he uh, now has a respite or he now has a a, 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 a what's the word? He's off the hook.
0: <laughs> Zoltan looks like the kind of guy that would fight with a turkey leg. Voltan. Voltan.
1: Yes. Yeah, Voltan, yeah. Give me a giant turkey leg. I want to beat someone. For giving an old bird a second chance. Oh, it's such (laughs) such a beautiful sentiment in such a silly, you know, playful movie. But, you know, it it touches on honest and noble ideas. It does. It's just, you know, he's a great character. Oh, and this is great. I mean, I don't want to fall for the old male I love a cat fight thing. But, like, Dale versus Aura is a thing that should happen. It should. Right? Well, and Dale... (laughs) an awesome first punch man she is not waiting for an invite dale just, dale just charges her I, i'm not into the whole idea of like a strong heroine and a strong female villain oh now they get to fight and cat fight that you know but why why shouldn't two women fight like why not oh, i just think that's a good
0: character moment and i think melody anderson sells it because she goes after her like it there is a moment in one of the mission impossible films the one with paula Patton, where she sees the female assassin And Paula Patton takes two seconds to kick her shoes off before she goes after her. And it has always made me cackle. Melody Anderson charging Unrella Mutiny there is that same kind of, oh,
1: shit, here it goes. This is a great moment. If you love, uh, she looks like, oh, my God, Melody Anderson looked like Wonder Woman in that shot. Um, But... Uh, this is a great moment because it calls back to when she was so nasty and she said, Oh, water is leaking from her eyes. And she says, now she says, Hey, if I was lying, could I have water leaking from my eyes? And it just speaks to the whole thing of sometimes evil is just a lack of empathy. You've never felt that kind of pain. So you don't know that, you know, now that she has felt that kind of pain, She's a little bit more human. You know, it's, it's great screenwriting for kids. No, I, don't, I don't mean, when I say kids, I mean, you know, anybody under 20, anybody under 15. Um, and this sequence here between two women who hate each other and then learn to, that they have a common goal, a common uh, unity.
0: Well, I think in general, that's most of the movie. Most of the movie is about
1: you're all fighting the wrong person. This is the great moment because she says, no, nope, nothing can help me now. And this is the beginning of act three right here. This is great. Nothing can save me now. Nothing can save me now. And I love that they're. They the scene opens with them hating each other, and then they instantly slow. Well, over the course of the scene, come to realize that you know we, we've both you know I've done some shitty things, but I'm on your side. You think I'm evil, but I rescue Flash. (laughs) I
0: see. I love that he's napping.
1: Uh, What? Oh, that look at the (laughs) way she walks down the ramp when she says everybody knows that from the song. But when she says, what do you mean, Flash Gordon approaching? And she's doing this little strut like this disbelieving. What did you just say? Now, I think I think it's Queen going flash Ah!" in between dialogue and whatnot that lends like lets people think you should be laughing at this and that's wrong <laughs> uh, yeah that's i
0: i don't i don't know i guess i don't i don't understand that i don't I really don't understand this movie is not i, I don't I, yeah i don't get it i don't get what the wink is or what you think that means that you're supposed to laugh at it's
1: awesome it's really cool and fun and big, and I think a lot of times the nature is to be cynical, and I think a lot even more often. A lot of viewers don't get the difference between laughing at a film and laughing with it. Like, you know what I, you know what? It would be laughable if this amazing miniature here that we're looking at right now, if that didn't look like a million bucks, I'd be laughing at it. If the actors were terrible, I'd be laughing at it. If the dialogue was stupid and it was really dull, then I'd be laughing at a bad film. But none of those things apply. But, Drew, I feel like we spent almost an hour, like, apologizing for this movie. No, I haven't
0: apologized once, and I won't. And I don't. That's the thing. I want the phrasing itself taken out of our conversations. Not you, but in general.
1: I love this shot of the Hawkman Army. God, is that beautiful. That's
0: what I mean. It's very Wizard of
1: Oz. Yeah, I don't mean. I I feel like we've both been more defensive than the film needs because we're trying to, like, you know. But that's because our
0: culture has done this. It has created. And look, part of it is film criticism. There is a shitty subcult of it that is dedicated to making you feel bad about what you like and trying to sell this idea that there is some, some list that is acceptable. And if you vary from the list, you're wrong. And that
1: has got to die. That has got to
0: end in our there culture. Is no,
1: yeah, there's no movie that's cool to like. You know what's, you know, what's cool. Liking what you like movies. Yes, exactly. I don't care if every single person I've ever met said Flash Gordon is a piece of crap. I don't care. It speaks to me. You've heard it for two hours. It excites me. It moves me. It makes me laugh. It has themes and ideas about heroes and, and uh, nobility and loyalty that I like. It has this gorgeous shot of this, God, look at that ship coming out of the smoke. Yeah. Uh, I I I I don't maybe apologize apologize for the film is not the right term but I I think a lot of times when it comes to Flash Gordon and Popeye like we did last time our default is to be like hey this is not crap instead of saying hey this is good Well and that's exactly
0: what that's one of the reasons that these are the films that I want to do commentaries for in the first wave of stuff and look dude by the other end of this decade I hope we do commentaries for uh ishtar and for joe versus the volcano and for movies that deserve that renovation from that end of the decade there's there's a million movies that we can talk about and look raiders of the lost ark has had plenty of love nobody is out there bagging well i take that back i learned recently that raiders actually is now underloved but um but there is a sense that there are movies that have already had their due and I think part of what we can do here by taking nostalgia out of the equation and simply talking about the films is we can help to eliminate the need to feel like you need to def- be defensive about what you love. And this is it, man. We love these movies
1: and this is why. Articulate. I'm sorry. I keep, I, I, I get, you're getting me all excited about this topic. Um, Good. Yeah. Uh, articulate what you like about a film, and and, yeah. defend, and defend it. Don't ever feel guilty. If you have three or four reasons for liking a film, that's all you need. You don't need, rotten to, you don't need Rotten Tomatoes. You don't need film critics to back you up. You don't need your friends to back you up. If you love a movie and you can name three or four reasons, then nobody has any, no one has a leg to stand on.
0: Well, and this is the era where I kind of realized that for myself because so many of the things that I saw that I loved, I didn't have people around me that had the same reaction. And I I had to either decide I'm wrong and I don't love what I love or decide, well, you people just
1: don't see it. And I think it led me to be who True, I am. I think a lot of younger movie fans or just younger people in general and a lot, a lot of older people, too. They just don't realize that a film is like an abstract painting. You look at it and you'll go. That looks like a teapot and I think it's beautiful. I look at it and go, I think it looks like a puppy and I don't like it. Yeah. And you like, like we both see different things and we will both react differently. and like there is no empirical Flash Gordon is a good film or Ishtar is a bad film. I don't care how uh, how uh, universally you think the disdain is, there, you will find a contingent of people who can find the beauty in stuff that other people just don't like.
0: I've said before, I think every film is somebody's favorite movie. And I used to say that kind of jokingly. And I have met people who, when you ask them what their favorite film is, and they say a movie.
1: Look at the technical. I'm sorry. I cut you off. Look at the technical okay. efforts that went into cutting this and cutting the. This. this is a great action sequence. This is.
0: And they're dealing with the fact that f- making people fly in front of a blue screen.
1: Yep. And land. Really and they're landing. The, the, yeah. the technical effort it took in 1980 to just do that. And, you know, he's having Barons ha- uh, Voltan's having so much fun being a hero. It's great.
0: It was really hard. And I think flying remained one of the big tricks in terms of these kinds of films where it never quite got it right, but you buy it here because of the performance is in front of it and because of the way they cut it.
1: Oh, it's masterfully cut. That, like there was just like the bit of all the soldiers running down the hallway and getting ready as, as the music pounds out, you know, and like, a- and every cut is like set to one of the beats of the score. It's beautiful. Yeah. Look at the foreground, background here. Oh, Gee, I uh, wonder if
0: there's a bomb.
1: It's beautiful. Uh, I, I could, I, could I, I love that shot of his face. <laughs> He's like smiling as the bomb goes off. Um, I, I, I just, uh, I, I didn't realize that Flash Gordon was considered "quote unquote" uh, not good until I like the internet. I guess you know, I always knew that it was considered a minor bomb in that it was expected to be a big hit and it only made it did some money, but not great money. That's all I ever knew about it negatively, and then the internet came along and informed me that, no, no, this movie is ridiculed and lampooned and kitschy. I'm like, no, no, this movie is adorable and beautiful and fun as hell. Like, Well, there's <laughs> a
0: generation that rejected camp outright and rejected sort of a sense of humor in their pop culture outright, and it's one of the reasons that for many years, if you brought up Batman... Adam West's Batman was considered deeply, deeply uncool and not good, and people made fun of it, and it became a joke. And I am delighted that we got past that, and it came back around to people now love Batman, and they love that it is its own version of Batman. And you now see stuff like the Lego Batman movie, where clearly Adam West's take informs a ton of what they did in that movie.
1: Yeah, I just, uh, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, This is the way Batman is now, and that's the way he should always be. Um, be Like, Batman used to be kitschy and funny. Then he got darker. Now he's, you know, darker still. And I'll tell you what, I hate to tell you this, Batman fans, but within the next 25 or 30 years, he's going to get lighter again. It's going to happen.
0: Oh, substantially.
1: These things. Uh, it's a great line. Tell me more about this man, Houdini. Come on.
0: How <laughs> quickly did the graffiti go
1: up? Yeah, along the flesh. And, oh, I love this. More villains who become heroic and a kick-ass woman. I love it. Love it. There's so much to like about this movie. And uh, if you don't like it, I will gladly have a conversation with you. But I'm a little defensive just because I'm tired of being told that a, a really entertaining film is bad.
0: That was what was so weird doing research for the uh, for the podcast was just reading article after article where people were bagging it as they wrote about it. And it's the weirdest self-hating sort of I, I don't want to look uncool, but I really love this, but I don't want to look uncool. And I think that breaks my heart a little bit, too, is that people are so conflicted about their own feelings. Mm,
1: I love that. Uh, sorry. I love that little bit where if you pay attention to Zarkov, how he's holding her hand and moving yeah. it around to open the door. It's just, this, you know, nice little bits, of, you know, that either Topol or that's Hodges. that's great.
0: That's great. And here's what Hodges does really well. He knows how to shoot the model stuff so that there's a sense of motion and weight and and it feels bigger. And that's that's a lot of guys who shoot models. They, they get that wrong and they move in a way that makes them feel like a model. He's very careful about a lot of that stuff. That shot that we just saw, the thing where it comes in and then it kind of goes sideways a little bit as it starts to turn. That is a great that sells the, the feeling that it's a
1: big, actual, physical thing. I believe um, I could be wrong. I, I really wanted to throw in a mention for the the guy who's like Voltan's right hand man. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that that guy's name is Loro. Is that John Hallam? But uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The old gentleman. Who, I, if I'm wrong, please. I, I apologize to the fans out there. But I, I he has such. he becomes kind of prominent at the very end of the movie. And I, I like him when he stabs the guy on the uh,
0: he just, looks like he should be on Game of Thrones.
1: Yeah, he's just jamming. He's that. got a
0: great look. By the way, when Brian Blessed opens his mouth, the laugh full on and throws his head back. I'm pretty sure I could fit both of my fists in there.
1: Uh, uh, the people you know what? This movie could have been nominated for best headwear. <laughs> most uh, m- headwear, definitely. <laughs> Ming, Aura, and Melody, uh, Ming, Aura, and Dale wear the most amazing headwear in this movie. That's terrific. The the uh, the chip pulling the uh, the letters in the sky behind it. That's great. Right, like like that. There, that to me Under is like pain of death. Yeah, that to me is the kind of humor this movie. Like, how could you think that's not an intentional joke? Why would a, an outer space universe that knows nothing of humanity have skywriters? Wait.
0: There's a great example of that. I, and real quick, I know terrible digression, but real quick, you're talking about how do you not know that's funny? I, I had that conversation once with an actor who is constantly getting people go, he's crazy. He doesn't know how crazy he is. And they make fun of certain films that he's done. I asked him one time about the Wicker Man remake. And Nick <laughs> Cage looked at me and he said, dude, there's a scene in that movie where I'm in a bear outfit and I do a karate kick on Lily Sobieski, knocking her off a bicycle. Do you think I don't know? That's hilarious, or at least, and at that point you go, "I forgive you," then because whether I like it or not, you're not an idiot, and you're not, and you're not indifferent to what you're making.
1: Right now, now if that if that interpretation of The Wicker Man doesn't work for you, that's fine. But I agree that movie was in in many ways going for weird laughs.
0: Yeah, it's not that they didn't know what was happening.
1: Neil Labute wasn't off getting coffee when that happened, and he came back and he went, "What? He did what?" Oh, I love this whole bit here of like, you know, oh, we're new friends, but I have to sacrifice myself to save everybody. <laughs> and oh, bro, I love you. Man hug. I love this. You know, that's all. This is like Drax this.
0: the Destroyer in the first Guardians when he laughs all the way into that. It's
1: like the good, like if there's an opposite of toxic masculinity, that's it. All right. Hey, nice to see you. Gonna die now. <laughs> you know, it's just like noble masculinity. And I like it. I think it's it should be celebrated, not ridiculed. I'm going to die. You know, God I, I you, know, man. come to think of it, this movie does have its fair share of ass-kicking women. I remember, I remember Dale being more of a damsel, but she, she's got her agency, and Aura is tougher than anybody in this movie. Who else Who else in this movie could deal with boar worms? Nobody, just her. I feel bad for the Hawkman who gets... This is my favorite. Best shot in the whole movie. When Baron takes down Kala. Love it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even mess with her. Wait. Hi, I'm Topo. Wait. How you doing? I love when he kicks the thing over. He's he's like, I'm a hero now. Take a take a visor <laughs> off, Mobot. Oh, oh, that freaked me uh, out as a kid. That moment. Oh yeah. Oh uh, no no he. Oh, she's got a fuck. She's got a ring that shoots flame. Uh, The dudes
0: in that room with the crazy eye things, they they remind me of the mutants in the Planet of the Apes sequel where they all live underground. Right.
1: One of those images that just sticks with you as a kid randomly. I love this whole idea that, like, there's this group of six or seven heroes. And it's like, wait, how did Baron end up with Zarkov? You know, that's like, wait a minute. You know, and that kind of leans into the Guardians of the Galaxy thing where you'll be like, wait a minute. How did Groot end up fighting with Gamora? What's going on here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he's having
0: so much fun now. They all are. That's, that's another great thing about the, the end of this movie is once the heroes decide they're all heroes, they're having the time of their lives. This is the most fun revolution ever.
1: Colitis melts. Cl- column melts.
0: That's gross, man. People have gross deaths.
1: In I, love how, I love how the idea of if, 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 if a smart man pushes random buttons... Something might happen. <laughs> Yo, Baron is not a great shot. No.
0: <laughs> Wait, Good love track, this. Terrible Wait, shot. watch
1: this. Watch. Love this moment here. He looks down at it. <laughs> what is that? Well, there's no need to kick down the tripod, but hey. That's I'm a, great. I'm a tough That's guy. Dude,
0: just take it.
1: Just no. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> I'm a hero. I got to kick it over. <laughs> I love the I also love the idea that uh when a woman I- on Mongo is forced to marry against her will, of course she does not wear a white wedding dress. She wears a black wedding dress.
0: Mm-hmm. The uh the Imperial Guards, the ones with the gas masks face, they look like uh Jim Henson Muppets on uh an alien planet. Like there's something very puppety no, yeah, about them. The mu- no they people. look like
1: the Mana That's what they, those guys. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, if you want to talk about the iconic Flash theme being used to good effect. Great. And, you know, he's willing to uh, die, uh, you know, crash this ship to sacrifice himself to save Dale. And, you know, that's that's like that's a hero. Uh, There's no conflict. There's no, you know, no irony. It's just that's what a hero does in this.
0: Kind yeah, there's of story. not a lot of angst among the bag, uh, the good guys in this movie. They're pretty straightforward.
1: Yeah, they're either bad or good, and they, you know, it doesn't take much to flip them from one side to the other.
0: Everything is ring based. They have a lot of ring based technology.
1: She, I also love her delivery of "I do not." There's a lot of different ways. <laughs> Honestly, wait, wait, wait. She comes up in a second, and this, this is another Star Wars bit. He, deactivate the lightning field why because he's trying to save his friends his new friends that's great yeah when she says uh, I do not it's it's just a a very defiant cool delivery and it's also a great shot when he jumps down off the stage there Uh, it's coming up in a second love that
0: I do wish, though, we got one good action beat between them, but that's a good villain death.
1: We have to throw out some names. Uh, Art director, John Graysmore. Great
0: villain death.
1: Costume design and production design, Danilo Donati. The editor, Malcolm Cook. The cinematographer, the great Gilbert Taylor. Uh, yeah. you know, not uh, a large portion of what we love about this movie is because of the editing, the production design, the <laughs> costume design, the art direction, the cinematography, uh, the score, uh, the, you know, the makeup, the, the makeup alone, you know,
0: a big part of what I did as a, uh, as a critic over the years was I tried to write about cinematographers because I feel like they always do kind of get a, a short shift in terms of uh, being credited with things. It's a great uh, moment Gil Taylor. Here. Yeah, Kill Taylor was the bomb, man. Between The Omen, Star Wars, the original, tr- the Batam Dracula, and this, there was a period there where I think he was as working as well as anybody in the business.
1: Yeah, say what you will about this movie, but it is shot beautiful. It is masterfully shot, wonderfully lit. The colors pop off the screen. Uh, God, and, look, and, at, look at him there. Max yeah, is killing it. Drew, I, I don't want to sound like I'm doing like a Kevin Smith bit here, But something that's come up a lot among fans of this film is if the moon is gradually approaching Earth and Flash stops the countdown mere seconds before it collides, doesn't that mean that somewhere near Earth, the moon is literally like six feet away from Earth? Oh, and our gravity
0: would have already pretty much destroyed the planet. Yeah, this is not this is not fixable quite the way we suggest it is here. That's okay. It's uh, okay. And we'll apparently,
1: the, the, this final moment here was improv because they didn't know what the last final shot should be. Yeah, I love it. I love the way he says that. It's great moment because it tells the audience and again, like who's the all graffiti
0: the- guy who already got into the throne room to put Ming is dead up on one of the heads.
1: Uh, I mean, maybe that was just like wishful thinking. <laughs> And now,
0: there, there is an entire movie to be made about the dude running around tagging Ming's yeah. palace. Oh, and this
1: is just the great adventure movie moment when all the characters you love either have a new job or a new lover or a new lease on life. And it's like, I got I, the wings. Oh! <laughs> I got a new car. I married Princess Aura. I'm the oh, king of. The new football helmet guy. Oh! <laughs> Fellini got a new hat. What <laughs> And Tim Dalton got nothing because he's already Tim Dalton. Yeah, what more? Can you give a guy who has Princess Aura I Ora? mean, come on. I want to see why. Like, if they, if Sam Jones, like, blew the chance for there to be a sequel, why wasn't the sequel just about Baron and Aura?
0: There you go.
1: Are you kidding? That would have
0: been really weird if it had just been called Flash Gordon 2 and there was zero reference to
1: Flash Gordon.
0: <laughs> All right, there you go. Surrender, the, Dorothy.
1: The... Uh, the a movie uh, we we could have spent an hour talking about just the 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 connections to Wizard of Oz, you know. This movie has a lot of Wizard of Oz in it. It's
0: funny. You want to talk about nostalgia? There's a fi- there's something that will very quickly irritate me is when you lean on Wizard of Oz in your film. Oh my god, does it drive me buggy?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: There's a sequel set up.
1: Oh, ho, 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 there's a question mark. So, Drew, why um, don't why don't you give our listeners a little? Why do you think that Flash Gordon has not been resurrected in? I know there was a a weak TV show a couple of years ago that lasted one season, but why do you think Flash Gordon has in this world of IP exploitation? Why has there not been another Flash Gordon movie?
0: Because I don't think anybody has the take. I think the hardest thing now is we've seen uh, we've seen this stuff done straight. We've seen this stuff done campy. We've seen people make fun of it. We've seen people make it more realistic. We've seen almost all and. Like a lot of early science fiction, this thing has been digested by pop culture so much that even if you go back and you do it dead straight and you get it right, it's going to feel like you're stealing from 500 things that borrowed from this in the first place. I I don't know that there's a take on it that isn't going to end up feeling like either someone's chasing the Hodges version and trying to do that, or they're trying very consciously not to do the Hodges version.
1: And that's how you know they did it right it's an unironic it's an ironic world you know when you're you know it's like you walk into a a a meeting and say i have the rights to flash gordon or even buck rogers for that matter and i want to just do a straightforward family oriented rock solid fast-paced adventure movie and they look at you and go yeah but what's the hook and you're like, that is the hook. I just want to make a fun space movie. I don't want to build a universe. I don't want to set up 10 sequels. I just want to make a Buck, uh, Flash Gordon, a Buck Rogers movie.
0: Nope, nobody in the world is going to let you make it without building in 700 things and IP that you can spin off. And now there would be a Hawkman movie. And now there would be a...
1: Can, dark, can Flash Gordon be dark and gritty where he doesn't want to save uh, Mongo? Where, like, you're, and- you're
0: right. There would be a movie just called Baron. There would be a movie just called Hawkman. There would be there would be fifteen movies that you know, it's ridiculous how you can already see how bad it would be if it was digested by the system now. Um, I'm glad that in some ways this movie is so big that any attempt to approach it, you end up reacting to it. So either you're gonna make a movie that's consciously not this, or you're gonna make a movie that leans into this, but I feel like Hodges may have planted a flag permanently and you
1: can't do it. Yeah, I I, 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 I want to end the commentary. Obviously, thank you to Drew. I want to also thank all our listeners. I want to say that like a lot of movies, when I was a kid, I walked out of Flash Gordon feeling 10 feet tall, like I could beat up the world or, uh, or change the world. I felt like uh, a hero. And everybody, uh, every movie geek, every kid should be able to walk out of a couple of movies every year and feel like they can do anything. And that's what flash Gordon did for me for uh, a couple of months when I was a kid. And I am forever grateful to this film. Uh, And I absolutely unironically love it.
0: I'm with you, man. Uh, Thank you uh, guys for listening. And as always, we really appreciate you guys supporting the Patreon page. Um, We want to continue to do these for you. We're going to continue to pick films that we think deserve this kind of deep dive and this kind of love for two hours. Um, and we'd love that you guys listen to them and and do this along with us. Um, please, uh, continue to rate us on iTunes, review us on iTunes, put the word out, reach out to friends, play us for family. You guys are the only reason the podcast continues to grow and we deeply, deeply appreciate it.